When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen. I do appreciate you. As always, feel free to reach out, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. All right, let's do a quick special shout-out to our patrons, to Mary, Adam, Candice, David, Michael, and Susie. Thank you all for all of your contributions. It makes a huge difference in getting all the things going on and done that we're trying to do. So special thanks to all of you. We had a amazing... And really, really fun and entertaining uh, interview today with a very special guest. So I'm really, really excited to have her on the show today. She is a master beekeeper, master gardener, author. She is the chairwoman of the Great Plains Master Beekeeping Governing Committee. Without further ado, let me welcome to the show Charlotte Wiggins. Charlotte, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I, you know, I've been talking to the the team here within our Discord room, letting them know we had a special guest coming. You know, I uh, kind of gave the the pre intro on some of your background and and uh, some of your your uh, bee experience. But if you wouldn't mind, maybe taking a couple minutes and just kind of run us through you know, how you got into beekeeping and and what your kind of your journey looks like, so that everybody can kind of get an idea of where you are. Well, when I I'm a gardener, so I've had this hillside garden, one-acre hillside garden here in mid-Missouri for 42 years now. And you can't not miss, you can't miss that the gardens are very tied to the pollinators and, and the creatures that live in the garden, right? The birds, the salamanders. And so I kept thinking to myself, you know, I think it'd be fun to add a couple hives, put them in the back 40, let them do their thing, you know, and then just have the bees for pollination. I didn't count on falling in love. <laughs> and when I was telling my uncle from Louisiana over Christmas where his honey gift had come from, he said, well, Sherry Lou, that was my kid, my, my childhood nickname from Louisiana, of course. He said, your family on your father's side were beekeepers back to 1400s in Hungary. Now, I don't know if it goes back that far, but he remembers working the hives down in southern Louisiana. My, my grandfather was a was an immigrant, and they had strawberry farms. And my uncle, at six and seven, remembers working the hives down there when he was young. So I think it's in my blood, you know. <laughs> I just love my bees. And, and when I said something to my, my brother, who was a genetic engineer, he goes, Yep, he said we have strawberry in our veins and beekeeper bees on our on our brain. 
So <laughs> that's probably my best excuse for why I love being a beekeeper. No, that's great. You know, I can't tell you as a, uh, you know, I'm a veteran myself and I've, and I've kind of advocated and, and talked to a lot of veterans and they've had similar experiences that I've had. And when I first started keeping bees, I found it to be one of the most peaceful and relaxing things that I've ever experienced. I mean, I would take, my, yeah, I would take that cup of coffee, go sit down right in between the first two hives that I had. And I'd be about four or five feet away and just, you know, hearing them buzz by my head as they would come into land and, and that's where I got hooked. And it was just from then on, it's been, well, yeah. And then of course, then you get into, I think I saw a thing the other day, it was like a license plate and it said, uh, I'm a professional gambler. I keep honeybees or something like that. You know, you get into the, <laughs> but you know, you get into that, that thing where the, I guess it's almost like a, uh, a repeating cycle of doom for some people that don't have the opportunity to, to learn the right way to do things. So, so we definitely appreciate right. you joining us today and hopefully we can get a few people, uh, just a couple nuggets of information to take away from today and, and, uh, have a little fun in the process. Well, you mentioned being a veteran. I'm also a Navy veteran and, your your listeners may or may not know that there is a free beekeep, beginning beekeeping program by a veteran out of Michigan, Dr. Adam Ingrao. He calls it Heroes to Hive, and it's an online program. You have to take your modules every month, and then they have teaching apiaries. He's out of Michigan, so he has his, his teaching apiaries in Michigan, but the, the partner states with Great Plains Master Beekeeping are also establishing teaching apiaries through their seven states. And you can, they encourage you not to get your bees your first year. They encourage you to take classes, follow other beekeepers, join a club, understand the biology, and then get your bees in your second year. As I said, it's free online and it's primarily for military, military members, retirees, and their immediate family. Heroes to Hive out of the University of Michigan. Yeah, so I definitely appreciate that additional kind of supplemental information because someone did post about it, and I've heard mention of it in our Discord room. But uh, that's great extra info to uh, to pass along. In fact, when I was um, soliciting suggestions for people to talk to and different topics of discussion, somebody had mentioned like, hey, can you get somebody from there on to kind of talk about the program a little bit? So I'm glad you brought it up and, and have had a little bit of um, some experience and some knowledge of them as well. That's great. There are a lot of programs out there. If I'm going to, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of there are a lot of beekeeping programs out there, especially if you're pursuing a master beekeeping. You know, you want that piece of paper, and there there are some excellent programs out there. But on, the Great Plains Master Beekeeping, which I'm helping with, is actually an education program. The idea is that you, we want people to start with the best management practices, the most current information, the best management practices, and then build on that. There's enough confusion out there. Uh, the Internet may have been the worst thing that could have happened to beekeeping <laughs> because people are accessible. You know, they have access to crazy stuff. And as you well know, I always tell people beekeeping is just a major juggling act. You know, the, 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 the answer to most beekeeping questions is it depends. And so there, there are no black and white answers to a lot of things. And so you have to be able to assess. And when we always say to people, we're coaches, the bees are the teachers, right? You need to be listening and paying attention to the teachers because they will tell you what they need and, and what they're doing if you're patient enough and willing to learn the world according to bees. 
But when people are able to access, you know, everything, and then they come into a beginning class and they're talking about something that some guy in Australia does, you know, that that makes it tougher for them to start on on the right track. And so University of Florida has a beekeeping program. They now have, I think, 250 classes online. That's Dr. Jamie Ellis. An excellent, excellent program. They tend to teach beekeeping, though, for Africanized bees, which, thank goodness, in the Midwest we haven't seen yet. There's a Georgia program. There's one out of California. They started a master beekeeping program in California. And these are all designed to get beekeepers helping beekeepers, right? Having mentors because we're, we have a shortage of mentors now across the country. And we've started a buddy program here where at our club and, and a couple other places are doing the same thing where we encourage beekeepers to work with each other, you know, go visit each other's hives, talk about what they're seeing, maybe have access to somebody who has more experience so they can ask questions. So look for programs like Heroes to Hives, which is an education program. The Heroes to Hives program at your second year funnels you into the Great Plains Master Beekeeping program. Don't be in any hurry to get those things done. You know, learn as much as you can. I'm a certified master beekeeper, and I will tell you, I know less today than I did 15 years ago. <laughs> okay. Seriously, right? <laughs> the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Sure, sure. I am successful in keeping bees, but, you know, I, I don't think of myself as an expert because there's so much more to learn, and things are changing you know, now they think bees are sentient. There's new research that says bees really do think, they feel pain. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. Just two years ago or three years ago, we didn't know that all might were removing the bees' immune system. We thought they were feeding off the hemolent, the, the, the bee, bees' equivalent of blood. So it's an exciting time to be involved in beekeeping because so much new science is, is, is being discovered. But it's a challenge to stay on top of it as well. So whatever you do, look for an education program, a one that's going to help you, you know, pace, help you pace yourself and get the right information for your foundation. Yeah, I think that was a great way of awarding it and explaining it. You know, for years, I personally viewed the master beekeeper as just a, a piece of paper, like you said. Right. And I thought about right. I don't need a piece of paper to prove, you know, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to I'm going to put information out. I'm going to try and help enable people and get people connected to other people. I'm not worried about the piece of paper. And now, right. now I'm kind of at that point where because I'm, I'm having more dialogue and more discussions and I'm engaging people in different ways, it almost seems like some folks don't even want to bring you in unless you can check that box. They're like, oh, are you a master beekeeper? Well, no. Um, okay, well, well, we'll see, you know, that kind of thing. So, it's, mm -hmm. But to your point, right, it's not just a matter of getting the paper. It's pursuing the knowledge and finding a way to get that in a way that's, that's not rushed through, you know, just to check the box. When you were talking, uh -huh. well, I was going to say when you when you were talking, it reminded me. You said about you know uh, some of the problems within the hives and how some of those things don't change. It was from Brother Adam, I think, that said most problems in a hive can be resolved by either taking something away or putting something into a hive, right? Right. And, and I tell people all the time that there's not a lot of absolutes in beekeeping. There are certain things that, oh, no. yeah, there are certain things that you just kind of have to do. Like you really don't want to do some silly things, but if you talk to, I think like we mentioned on the phone the other day, if you talk to 20 or 30 people, you might get 20 or 30 different answers, you know, and to your point about the internet, you've just got to be so careful about the information that you receive. And once you find a good source of somebody that you know, and you trust, latch onto them, keep them close and just keep peppering them with questions. Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, we, we joke in our classes that if you're going to look for somebody, you pass by all of those people on YouTube with a brand new spanking clean bee suit. Okay? You just fast forward past those people. You want the person that has a big, clunky, dirty, stained bee suit because you know <laughs> that they have had, they have some experience, right? Actual experience with the bees. Same thing with gardeners. You don't want the gardeners that have the long, gorgeous, manicured nails. You want the ones that have the French, the French uh, um, manicure that has soil under the nails instead of the white, you know, nail polish paint. You want to be talking to people who have experience, and I think you will notice that even if they are not in your particular area, they will say, "Well, where are you?" Okay, well this. This may not apply to Missouri, but this is what we do in Michigan, or this is what we do in Minnesota, or this is what we do in Florida. So that's one of the reasons when you're asked two beekeepers, you might get five different answers. The beekeepers are keeping the bees for different reasons. Some people keep them for pollination. Some people keep them because they want honey. Some people are keeping bees because they want to start a business and they want to sell bees. If you're like me, your bees are your pets. You know, I mean, I, I, I have my bees because they're an integral part of my ecosystem, but I'm not, I'm not pushing them to, be, to sell bees. I'm not pushing them to make honey. I just want them to be happy, right? I want to observe them in my, in my garden system. So all of those, just those four reasons, when you ask a question, you will get at least four different answers because you may be doing different things with your bees for the outcome that you're trying to produce. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that's one of the first questions I tend to ask people is, well, where are you geographically? You know, cause we have people that listen to the podcast all over the world. So I'll get people from Australia and England and Canada. Yeah. So it's, you know, the, that ge- geographical aspect of it is critically important, but I guess early on when I first started, I think, you know, episodes three or four, you know, way back when I said, one of the first things you got to do is find a mentor. You got to find a way, join a bee club, get latched on to somebody who can at least kind of guide you down that path. But I think you made a critically important kind of uh, a statement and comment there around finding what your why is. Because for me to tell you, well, this is all the stuff you have to do, but then you know, there, there needs to be a component of that that is geared towards in order to reach this objective, right? And if we don't know what that objective is, it's uh, you, know, you might be steering somebody in the wrong direction. Well, I'm going to talk about the, the, the real elephant in the room about beginning beekeeping, okay? okay? And that is that we, beginning beekeepers, are scared to death to lift that cover off and have 10,000 little bugs flying in their face. And we understand that. Our club here, we, we talk about it. We sometimes tell stories, you know, about when we were starting. But you have to take some initiative and get over that. And I've mentored a number of people, and uh, the one that I just had recently is a couple. They took our class. They got bees. And I was out going out to help them chat up, and they were standing on their porch waiting for me to check their bees. And I said, where are your bee suits? (laughs) And they said, well, you're here to check the bees. I said, no, I'm here to see you check your bees. Go put your bee suits on, you know. And for having talked to mentors, I know some of them, just don't have the time to mess with a beginning beekeeper who's not taking initiative, right? To have a bee suit, to know the basic terminology, 
it's okay if you put your hive tool in to take that cover off and it's shaking because it's your first time. We've all been there. Sure. But the bottom line is do it, right? And and, and be at, show your mentor or the person that you're shadowing for a while that you've taken initiative. And even if you've got your bee suit zipped on wrong, I don't remember which, which bee suit it was. It was the one with a circular hood. I could not zip that sucker on for a little life of me. So I would have to take it to a bee club meeting after I washed it and have somebody else show me how to zip, zip it back up. You know, it's okay. It's just that you don't get to not put your bee suit on because you can't zip it up, right? You don't have somebody else do it for you. And we know that that scare to death part really keeps you, a lot of beekeepers from walking over that threshold and finding how fascinating bees are. We tell people here, you're, it's not if you're going to get stung, it's when. And we always have a contest, who gets the first sting of the season. <laughs> we, we joke about that. And we have Stop the Sting, you know, that's a collodial oatmeal that really helps with, with the swelling. But, you know, the whole idea is, and I do beekeeping without gloves, and I don't get stung. And people just marvel at that. And I said, but then I don't do silly things, though. I don't. We're, we just had rain. I won't be going out on my highs, my colonies, in rain. You know, they're going to be grumpy about that. Sure. You have to know to read your bees when the right time is for you to be out there with them. I always keep a, I always have a hood on. I always keep my gloves close by if I need them. I don't use a smoker. I use the kitchen towel method. You know, I don't bang around and make a lot of noise. I'm slow. So these are all habits you have to develop. But you're not going to get them if you don't get in your hive. And in our class, we always say if you take the lid off and you're looking down on your bees and they're running back and forth on the frames and not paying any attention to you, you're good. But if all the little heads turn up and they're all looking at you, you just very slowly put that lid back on and go back some other time. And, and, you know, there are always exceptions to the rule, but the whole idea is to give that new beekeeper some control over whether it will be a good experience or not. And sometimes it can be five minutes later, they're fine. Sure. You know, it's just if, if you're knocked against the hive and that got their attention, that may not be the best time, but five minutes later, it should be fine. Same thing with climate. We were talking about geographic locations. We live in, I live at the belly button of Missouri, right? Right in the center, a little lower down from the waistline of the state. And we have microclimates because we have hills. We are the edge of the Ice Age hill formations that were made millions of years ago. We can go 10 miles and they can have different weather than we have here. So it doesn't have to be a state away. It can be just a few miles away. You know, we talk about nectar flow. It's, it's interesting on our Facebook, Rolla Bee Club Facebook page, are people posting, well, do you still have nectar flowing? I don't have any nectar flowing, you know, and, and you see that around the state as well. And northern Missouri was in severe drought a lot sooner than we were, and they didn't have any nectar, and we were having a gangbuster spring. We had eight and ten swarm calls a day, oh, and that wow. was because people were not paying attention to the space needs, right, of the brood chamber. And so their colonies were swarming. But it was a, it was quite a wild spring. Now, of course, going into this drought, the bees may be consuming a lot of that because there's nothing in nature. So that's a whole different discussion. But 
yeah, clients can be just, a, you know, your neighbor. It doesn't have to be, you know, 100 miles away. Sure. You know, I have the same experience here where my home, where I've kept bees for years, we always had a summer dirt that we had to contend with. And I just was used to it and knew how to handle it and deal with it. I moved them to what is now my apiary, which is about 65 miles away. And it's in a nice rural area and there's tons of forage. There's, there's always something, you know, in bloom. So I can, I, it's very low maintenance there. I can just throw a few honey supers on, come back in a couple of weeks and they're full, you know, oh, yeah, wow. it's so much easier, but it, it's, it's uh, like you said, it's not that far away. I mean, I don't even have to go as far as that to see just the big difference going from that suburban to that rural transition. Yeah. Now, yeah. You mentioned something. You mentioned the kitchen towel method. Now, I haven't heard of this, but I think it might be something great to pass along to the team here. Oh, it's lovely. You can get them at any of the big box stores in the kitchen section. They're muslin kitchen towels. And I think the last batch that I bought were eight towels for like four ninety five. And they're if you think about dish uh, kitchen towels that you dry dishes on, that's what they are. They're white, nothing very fancy. They're muslin. And when I open a colony, I will fold, the kitchen towel will be folded in half, and I will fold that half over half of the colony. Or you can put the whole kitchen towel over the top and then fold it back as you're removing the frame. It keeps the bees calm. They're in darkness. And then you're able to manipulate whatever frames you want to get out to inspect or check, and you don't need smoke which means you, you have a higher chance of seeing your queen, you know, without smoking. And I, I probably use that up through July unless I'm going to extract, and then maybe I'll, I'll have my smoker going just in case. But even in extracting, uh, the, I mean, taking the frames out for extraction, I use a, a turkey feather. A friend of mine just gave me a small little leaf vacuum, you know, to blow the, the bees off. And I thought, oh, that'll be nice and handy to try. <laughs> okay. But no, I, I, don't, I don't need the smoker. If my, if my bees are spicy or if I'm working with, with a colony that's cranky, I know something's wrong. That, that is not their choice. There's something that's not off. It's usually they're out of space in the brood chamber or they're out, you know, they're out of space in the, in the honey super or there's some mouse in there. I mean, I there was one time that there was um, my friend David was sending me pictures of his hive that was out in a, a different, well, about 15 miles from here. And he kept saying, something is getting into this hive. Look at the entrance reducer, which was at a 45-degree angle to the entrance of the hive. And so he went back there a few day, weeks later. Same thing. He put it back in place. It was open. Well, there was a mouse family inside the hive. Oh, wow. And the bees were very angry with him every time he got close. And I said, David, something's not right. You know, they would not be, you're not doing anything to make them defensive, right? So something's not right. So we, I went out with them when we opened, we took the hive apart. And sure enough, there was a family of, of mice and babies that were in the corner. And they were aggravating the bees. So... That's a really good thing to know. If you learn to observe your bees, you know, watching the figure eight at the front, or the, which are the little nurse bees orienting themselves, and and you you see them bringing the pollen back in, and you know, kind of crash landing at the entrance. I love to watch that because they're just their load is too heavy. Or the ones that come out, and you know, the, the girls having tea, 
some of the bees will come out of the front and they'll be talking to each other and they'll be sharing. They may be sharing water. The water carries are bringing water back, but it looks like they're chatting, right? They look like they're having a little tea party. You start observing that, you know, things are okay. And then when you start observing a, what I call defensive behavior, not aggressive, it's defensive. They're protecting their home. Then you know something's off, you know, and that's a good way to say to yourself, okay, that, this, is, this is normal, this is not normal, so I need to do something about that not normal part. You know, if it, things are going well and they're enjoying, you know, they're, what, whatever they're doing seems to be what they should be doing that particular time of year, then it's good. You can just sit there and observe them. But when they're not doing right, that's when you need to decide what you're going to do. You can't leave them that way because you're, you have a responsibility as a beekeeper to make sure that they have what they need, you know, to have a, a, a safe and, and uh, useful home. And for the bees that tend to be space, whether it's space in the brood chamber or and space up above, right, where they can store their their nectar for winter, those tend to be the two places that we as beekeepers don't always do a very good job of staying on top of that. You know, I love hearing you talk because some of the things that you're saying really resonate with me. I think about, you know, we really, especially me, as I'm trying to communicate, you know, how do you keep bees and all the moving parts with it, I think sometimes we get really wrapped up in the mechanics of it. You know, the, well, take the hive tool and turn this way and do this. But, but, you know, the interactions and the things that you just talked about, like those are the things that make you fall in love with beekeeping, right? Watching them at the front and naming them and like, you know, like, Oh, you know, there's, you know, like I always use people's names, like real regular, normal people's names for pets and for anything, you know? So it's like, Oh, there's Janine and Frank over there. They're, you know, like, but you know that's that seeing that interaction and being at at that intimate level with them so that you can be in tune and know when things are off. I think that that's even more important sometimes in the mechanics of everything. Oh, absolutely! Because the mechanics are tools, right? They're they're you need to learn those how to do a split, how to introduce the queen, how to. But there's always an exception. You know, mo- in most cases, there's an exception. We had somebody who was introducing a queen into a nuke. They had lost a queen. My guess is they rolled it. They pulled the frames out too fast. They're a beginning beekeeper. And so I told them, I said, okay, now, you know, at day four, if they haven't released her from her queen cage, you know, you can release her, but make sure that she's fed every day. Give her a, a, a drop of honey, a drop of water, and observe how the bees are accepting her. If they have their heads into the cage and they look like they're feeding her and talking to her and, and grooming her, that would be great. But if they're, the rear is being pointed into the cage, then there's something else going on, right? You may have another queen uh, for whatever reason or lane workers and they think, don't think they need a queen. So you need to really observe that. So I saw him about a week later and I said, so how, how's your new queen? And he said, Oh, she died. I said, what do you mean she died? He said, well, I forgot to feed her for two days. And, you know, do you leave your dog without food for two days? Well, no, I'm just asking. You know, do you, you know, don't you feed your cats every day, your sure. dogs every day? And I told him, you said, you can't leave her without food. And he said, well, I didn't think it would be that big of a deal. The point I'm making is that we have to understand that we are not in charge of their lives. We are part of the bees' world, but we are not dictating what they do. 
you know, we need to understand their schedule and their needs and then supplement that as best we can as beekeepers. And if we don't do that, you know, they don't wait on us. They don't read our books. They don't watch YouTube. You know, they've got their own <laughs> way of doing things. And if we're not conscious of that, and they're a super organism, right? So if, if a colony's sick, you may see bees flying off because they don't want to contaminate their colony. They do everything for the benefit of the colony. They're not individuals like we are. You know, they don't have an entitlement attitude. And so I think it's fun to to sit back and watch the bees as they operate because our world is different than their world. You know, they are much more caring for the the whole colony. And I think we could learn a lot from that. But more importantly, we need to understand that that's how they operate and, and then carve out a niche for ourselves. I have one column here. I have, I run nine colonies, and then I say nine plus one because I, I play with nukes. I may have, you know, five nukes one, one week, you know, just one the next. And I love to go out and see the personalities. Every colony is different. You know this. They have their own unique personalities. They have their own unique relationship. This one particular colony, mine are all painted like houses different colors. They have both doors and windows. And <laughs> and this one particular colony is Isabel. She's in the yellow hive. That colony loves this patch of native herbs, germane, which is a herb that finally sprung up here on my property. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it they continue coming back because they were here when I first moved in here. And they go over there and they, they you know, go through the flowers and, and they seem to have decided that that's their patch. And if I want to see bees from that colony, I just go over to that flower patch and observe them on the flowers. None of my other colonies are that committed to that flower patch. And, and I know that they're, they're that hive bees because I watch them flying back. You know, the hive is relatively close to them about 50 feet away and they fly back to the hive so if we spend time understanding that each colony has you know peculiarities they have differences one of my colonies has a lot of drones you know there's a reason that we can learn from that but we have to observe it first unfortunately you know you said they're not black and white they are living creatures and yes the books can give us a start but then we need to start observing what they're doing and learning from them not from the books well that actually is a good transition i know that we we had talked briefly but i didn't i didn't ask for a lot of details when we talked before but you mentioned something that was kind of unique because you have published a book yourself and i think you've done a second edition on that one but the way that if i remember correctly you said that you're not it's not like a you know go to amazon buy the book thing it's something that's more designed specifically for the teaching that you're doing and to help people out and to help you know, kind of supplement some of the programs and things you're working on. Would you mind sharing yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. So when I started beekeeping in 2010, there was a traditional first lessons in beekeeping by Keith Delaplane, fun little book. There were, there were those science and extension type of books available. But when I finished reading that, I remember putting it down and saying, now what? You know, how do I get started? And so A Beekeeper's Diary, which is, is, is subtitled Self-Guide to Keeping Bees, is that book that I would have liked to have had when I started. And so it starts out with feeding your bees naturally. There's a whole chapter about why you need to know about plants. 
I, I can't tell you the number of times beekeepers have said to me, I'm a beekeeper. I do not need to know about plants. And it's like, <laughs> what do you think your bees are eating? What do you think they're taking into the hive to feed their babies? You know, it comes from the plants. Maybe you don't need to be a master gardener for sure, but you need to be, be able to identify what trees are blooming so that you know whether the nectar flow is starting, what your bees are bringing in, you know, and be able to assess the level of food they're, be, they're able to store for winter. And that book, I've used it in my classes. It started out as a handout, and then it became a loose-leaf binder of handouts. And then it got to be such a mess and so big that I made it into this published, self-published book that we use it as, a, as our class guide. Matter of fact, it's also the book that you can read and study and take the Great Plains Master Beekeeping test from your apprentice level to the journeyman level. So you go through the Great Plains program has 20 modules online. So they, 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 the requirements are yes, volunteer hours, you know, like a master gardener kind of program. But you take your online modules, then you take an in-person class. And then hopefully you work with some bees and then you take your online test. And if you pass that, you take a field test and then you move up to the journeyman level. The critical part of that beginning level, having taught this for a number of years, is that we don't always remember that if we've been keeping bees for a while, Kim Flodham is a perfect example of that when, when he and I were talking about this book a couple of years ago. He's been keeping bees, I think, 35, 36 years. And he said, I forgot that the smoker can be the hardest thing a beekeeper learns to do. You know, you're keeping a fire in a 16-ounce soup can, basically. And the other thing that beginning beekeepers love to spend time with, at least around here, is what, how to paint their hides, right? What kind of paint to use and what kind of designs and blah, blah, blah. And I spend time on that because they may not be able to relate to anything else you're talking about. But they can relate to putting paint on a box, you know. And so we'll spend time on that latex paint. Don't paint the inside, you know. Get the, you can use the inside latex samples that you get at home and garden centers because David and I have done that for years. We go through that because then they have a sense of maybe uh, friendly. They feel friendlier towards. This is very expensive. Beekeeping is expensive. It's scary. It's a, a lot of information all at once. I joke about it, $700 in a used freezer to be successful. <laughs> and, and so we want people to feel like they can find a place to get into it, right, without being so overwhelmed. And so painting hides is one of that. But I'm a list maker. So this book has honeybee diseases, for example, and we'll, has pictures of it and say, now this is what you'll find. This is what your options to fix this. This is how you prevent it. You know, if it's something preventable. And I had 14 beekeepers help me uh, develop the guide in terms of double-checking things and because we wanted to make sure we were covering different levels. And 10- and 15-year beekeepers have picked up the guide and told me that they've learned things from reading this. So it's a, I'm very proud of it. I do think it's a good tool. It's not, you can, you, there's nobody else out there with this tool. And there's checklists. So let's say you're going to discuss where you're going to put your hives, right? I think there's like 14 decisions you have to make on where you locate your hive on a piece of property. Who remembers them? <laughs> okay, I didn't when I started. 
So I have a checklist that says, okay, you know, what flat surface, but, but the high right, you say flat surface, but then the hive has to be forward a little bit, right? So that if there any water gets in, it doesn't accumulate in the bottom of the hive. Anyway, so there's 14 different check marks that you can, and places you can write stuff in about the things you have to decide on, on your hive placement. There's a whole section on, on bee biology, and I have it compared where you have worker bees, queen bees, and drones, so that by the time you, you finish those sections, you should be able to recognize your queen a lot faster because you've learned little snippets about her versus huge narratives, right? Big, long paragraphs. These are little bullet snippets in column. And what else do we have? I mean, if, if you take that book, if you don't have a club look close by and you don't find a mentor, you can't find a mentor, other people have taken that book and set up their colonies successfully. So that was what it was designed to do. And the second book that I have is called The Bee Club Basics, which is how to start a bee club, how to start an educational nonprofit. Again, a book that's not available on the market, something that people struggled with, especially during COVID. You know, how do you, how do you get your bee clubs back up and running? How do you get volunteers to help? And right now I'm finishing my third, which will be a, these three books are a series, right? Will be, it's called Bees Need Flowers, Planting for Pollinators. So, I joke about it's a gardening book for beekeepers. It's more than that. It's helping you understand. I don't know how many people come to me. Oh, you're writing a book about flowers for bees. Okay, so will there be a list of flowers in there? And I always go, (laughs) no, there won't. And they looked at me. I said, you're asking the wrong question. You don't need a list of flowers. It's helpful to know what flowers like sweet clover Sweet yellow clover is an excellent honey, you know, nectar source for your bees. There's so many other factors that go into successfully producing nectar for your bees. And if you keep your soil healthy, moist, you know, hydrated, composted, your trees will then do the rest. So we're focusing on the wrong part of the gardening. And I've had a number of people who've come up to me and said, my gosh, once I focused on that, Everything else fell into place. So I'm not going to repeat the same mistake. I'm not going to say, here's a list of plants, plants, because that, I, I can guarantee you, you won't get the result you're looking for. You just have to ask a different question. So these are books that are out there. I'm passionate about uh, planting for pollinators, for sure. That's, that's what I lecture on a lot. I did a TEDx about why bugs matter. You know, we need to, for, we need to reconnect with our environment. We have become, we've forgotten where, where our food comes from. We've, we've lost our connection to our outdoors. And we, if we're going to contribute to a healthier world, literally, we need to reconnect. And we need to understand that we may be doing things harmful that we don't mean to be doing. But more importantly, there's simple things that we can do that will be healthy. Our compost. How many people really do compost? And that's the easiest thing that you can do to help your soil. You know, soil's not renewable. Soil, new soil is produced over 3,000 years. So in your and my lifetime, whatever soil we have that may be flowing down the hill because of rain is not renewable. But if we can put compost into that soil, treat it kindly, don't till it, don't abuse it, make sure it always has a plant that's 
the sequestering carbon, you know, little things that we can do as property owners. It may be just one person like me or two people like you, Jeff, but just think if all of us were doing that. We could make a difference. So I couldn't I agree people. with everything you just said. I'm sitting here, you know, check, check, absolutely. I mean, because I have these same discussions with people on a regular basis myself, you know, and I've, I recently heard somebody had commented about uh, just some of the documented psychological benefits of, of physically gardening, of putting your hands in the earth and, and moving around the soil. And, you know, I, you nailed it with, you know, the idea that, you know, we, we really don't know where our food comes from. You know, I've been taking this property that I, that I purchased to start out as an apiary. But now in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to put this over here. I'm going to have some chickens. I want to get, you know, these various fruits and flowers and, you know, blackberries and different things to create their own little ecosystem. And everything that you're saying is just, I mean, I think we could probably do a couple of separate hour long, two hour long discussions (laughs) on that alone, because we know we're, we we can all recognize that we're not being as kind as we need to be to our planet. And, and uh, we got some real challenges on that on that front. So I'm with you hundred percent there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the top of the list here and run, sure. run through some of these. So I, I'm going to start it off with, with everyone's kind of favorite subject. You know, it's one of those subjects where, you know, it was not as big of a deal to, I think, newer beekeepers who don't necessarily understand the magnitude and how important it is. But I'm talking about, you know, the treatment of and recognizing the presence of Varroa. You know, I look to my early years of beekeeping and Varroa was almost kind of like a just another topic or subject that somebody would mention or, or speak about. But the emphasis on just how important it is to address it was, was never really kind of, at least to me, early on, it didn't seem like it was a priority. So I've tried to really, really emphasize to people that, hey, you know, one of the single biggest things is going to destroy everything. No matter, you can do everything right. You can be doing literally everything else right. And if you're not you know, monitoring and treating for Varroa, you're going to lose everything. It's going to be all over. And I, you know, I think I, I in my first couple of years, kind of did the, um, oh, that's not going to happen to me, kind of thing. Like, oh, that, right, won't, that right. won't happen to my bees. And uh, you know, when I go back and I look at some of my notes and things and and the problems I was having, I was thinking, oh, well, it was probably moisture why they didn't overwinter successfully, or it may have been this other thing. When in reality, it was it was most likely Varroa. So the question that I have that kind of came in this morning here, the person who, who submitted the uh, question said they're curious about hive treatment. How often are you conducting mite counts? Are you treating just to treat or solely on mite count? And the question I have been contemplating, and I know there are so many different views here, 
one of the local beekeepers where I am said just to treat, and that seems to be the norm here. I am in Central Coast, California. Thanks for the opportunity to ask a question. Excellent question, and probably one of the biggest issues debated in most bee clubs across the country. So first understand that varroa mites, which are little tick-like, they would be the size of a dinner dish if they were attached to one of our shoulders or one of our legs, are an invasive species. And in their native habitat, the bees over there in Southeast Asia have learned to manage varroa. They are not, our bees are learning, but they've not learned fast enough. It's not the mites themselves that are causing virosis now. That's the word for, for the, all the viruses. But the, the varroa eat, consume the immune system of the bee. You know, they have a little straw and they, that they put in under the plates underneath the, the bee, and they suck out what's called the fat body, which is the equivalent of the liver, of the bee's liver and their immune system. And once the fat body's gone, the varroa detaches, and then you start seeing them right on the bat on the outside of the bees. It's the little red dot that you see on that side of the bee. And that bee is compromised. It has no way to fight off. They now say 52 viruses that the varroa distribute. Now think of what we went through when we had COVID worldwide in 2020. That was one. Well, there were several, right? There were several iterations of the, of the virus. Think now if we were dealing with 52 different viruses, which is what our bees are dealing with. So the point of keeping the varroa mite levels low is to minimize the number of varroa that have access to the, to the, the bees' immune system so that they're not distributing the, the virus throughout the colony. Now, I've had people say to me, you know, we all know we've got them. Just treat them. And I say, okay, so did your treatment work? Unless you're monitoring, you're not going to know. Well, first, if you're not monitoring, you don't know if you have to treat. You don't want to just willy-nilly treat because the varroa will develop an immunity to that particular treatment. So that's number one. Number two, you know, now the, the recommendation is if you have two varroa per 100, your colony's toast. And that to me is scary because, you know, in the, in the springtime here in, in Missouri, uh, by May, June, I may have one or two varroa surfacing in the, I do an alcohol wash in my alcohol wash monitoring. But that to tell me that they already, you know, compromised helps explain why we have 48% of all hives, you know, dying over winter because, as the varroa numbers go up into fall and the bee numbers go down, the varroa take over, right? The varroa viruses take over that colony and it causes the colony to collapse. So, yes, I'm an advocate of monitoring. You start out when you do your first hive inspection, whenever that is. I think in California, your spring starts in February, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and I feel like, uh, I'm not sure who it was that posted that, but I'm pretty sure I mean, they're starting almond right around like February, like late February, early March, right? Yes, we start in March, weather permitting, but yes, we start in March. And we particularly pay attention to things like, okay, when you pull the frame out and you see the drone brood that gets kind of torn sometimes, you know, because the wax is attached to the bottom yes. frame, we remove that 
drone brood and we look for varroa inside the drone brood. And if we don't see any and we've done the monitoring, we've done our alcohol wash, we write that down and we consider ourselves lucky. In 2018, I was doing an inspection end of April and I had this gorgeous frame of brand new drone brood and the bottom right hand corner was about a two inch square of old drone brood. And I happened to, I wanted to see what was in there. And I opened it and I did a little video. It's only a minute, eight seconds. I think it's on the Rolla Bee Club YouTube channel. And you can see all the varroa that were running around inside that drone brood. And you can see the white, the little males, which are white. And you can see the little females running around. One varroa in April is our 3,500 varroa by August. So as you start you know, monitoring and knowing, let's say you have one Varroa, well, then you need to start thinking about your options. And treatment is not necessarily your best option. You can do a a split. You know, one of the recommendations Tom Seeley has about managing for Varroa is keeping your colonies small. Separate them. We should not have colonies next to each other, at least six feet apart, so that the, the bees that may be coming back from foraging and have varroa and they're drifting because all your hives are white, you know, they're carrying those viruses into these other colonies. So make sure your colonies are clearly marked, right? Your metric designs is what bees need because the co- they don't see the colors that we see, but they, they know where home is, but they, they can come back pretty easily to where home is. You don't have the hives next to each other, so they don't end up in somebody else's home, you know, house. And make sure that you think through what you can do in the springtime. You can do splits. You can do drone removal. You can requeen, find a hygienic-sensitive queen source, and requeen so that the bees are starting to take care of the varroa themselves. the varroa-sensitive queens, at the fourth to sixth day of gestation, they can pick up that the varroa are in that pupa, and they will remove the pupa. So you don't have to be doing it. But there are several things that you can do that are not treatment-related. Now, let's say you're into June, and now you're starting to see you know, two varroa, maybe three varroa, and you think you need to do something about that. Make sure that you download the Honeybee Health Coalition Guide to Varroa. And if you go online, they actually have a Varroa decision tool. They say, they'll, they'll walk you through what have you found in the hive, you know, and what your options are. There's some integrated pest management steps like removing drone, drone brood, but they also have a guide on what's out there on the market. The critical thing to remember is that there's some products that are temperature sensitive so you you cannot use them if the temperature goes over like 85 degrees and there's some most of those products can't be used while you have honey supers on i think might away quick strips is one of the exceptions so make sure just like gardeners do the same thing the most the people who most disregard and and are providing more chemicals into our gardens and our beekeepers are gardeners and beekeepers or don't read instructions. We don't read labels. And so we need to read the labels and we need to follow them. And so 
that the Honey Bee Health Coalition is considered the leading expert on varroa management. Now, the interesting thing that I find is Zach Lamas is doing some research. He's asked the question of, are we testing the right bees? So what do, who do we test when we do a varroa mite? Nurse bees. We're supposed to pull out the frames in the brood box that have those, nur- those little worker- those nurse bees that are, what, four to seven days old, right? Because those are the ones that varroa get into. They, when, the, when the drone brood decloses, the varroa then are running around looking for a host. The nurse bees are not flying yet. They don't have their wings yet. And so varroa tend to get into the nurse bees. And so when we do a varroa test, we're supposed to pull the brood, frame of brood out from the brood chamber and test those nurse bees. Well, Zach Lamas is saying, why aren't we testing drones? And I went, duh, where are the varroa? Right? They're in the drone pupa. They're not. Yes. By the time they're, they're sucking the, 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 you know, fat body out of a nurse bee, they're out. But why not take it back to where they're inside the pupa? And we know, for example, that some of our queen failures today are because the drones are weaker, right? The varroa are eating off of them. By the time they come out and are, you know, playing their genetic part in mating with queens, they're not as strong as they were. And so that means we have weaker queens as well, you know, as, as the genetics evolve. But so there's new stuff coming out about Varroa. You know, maybe we'll, in two years, you and I will be talking about the, the drone count versus the nurse feed in Varroa man- monitoring. But it's really critical to stay on top of all of that and follow the recommendations. There's a wonderful program called the Sentinel Program. Have you heard of that? I have not. It's a citizen program. It's also run by the Honeybee Health Coalition. And you, it's a, I think it's, it costs $300 to have four of your hives tested. So you do your varroa monitoring and you send in your samples to them and they'll give you a report back. This year they added wax testing, which you may know is very expensive to do if you try to do it individually. And our teaching apiary that we have here, we're part of the Sentinel program to see, you know, the varroa mite levels that they're, that they're coming back with, what's in our wax. We know, for example, that wax accumulates chemicals, which is why they say we should be rotating our frames out every three years. And so we're just, we're citizen scientists. We're collecting the stuff and sending it in and, and monitoring what's happening with our teaching apiary. That's something else that you can do as a, as a regular beekeeper, too. Probably more as a sideliner because you would have more bee, you know, bees that you could participate in the program uh, with. But it's a great way to get data back that's from scientists, and you're not paying an arm and a leg for it. But let's get back to Varroa. So let's say it's June. You're going into the end of your dearth. You know, North North America that we have this kind of dearth that's in the summer time, and August is the beginning of winter for bees. Right, the summer bees are are giving way for the longer lasting winter bees that have more vitagellin, which means they live longer to pull the colony through winter, and that's when the crisis develops with varroa because those bees are compromised. If you have a high level of varroa in your hive going into winter, right, which is August. And so 
sometimes beekeepers start talking about treatment July. Maybe they've taken their, their honey supers off. And so they're going to start looking at treatment options because the honey supers are off. And really critical, so again, look at the temperature that you can use the product in and whatever your conditions are and making sure whether they can use be used for honey supers or not. Now, one of the more natural varroa treatments that we've talked about and used around here was the oxalic acid vapor, right? The little wand that you stick into the front of the hive, you close up the hive with with uh, rags or towels or whatever, and you basically vaporize your bees for a couple of minutes, and that knocks the phoretic varroa off. It's usually done when they don't have brood, when there's a broodless period. Around here, we tend to do it in November, at two weeks after the last hard frost. So we know the bees won't have any babies, and you're trying to knock down the number of those little phoretic that are running around. It doesn't go into seal brood, but you're, again, you're trying to keep your numbers low. One of the uh, scientists that was on a Zoom call recently talked about how she did not recommend the oxalic acid vapor. She likes the drizzle, which is a, you can get a little plastic, um, oh, what do you call these? You can get them at home and garden centers, you know, for giving cows medicine and pipette kind of thing and she said she prefers drizzle not because it's better for the bees although it is easier right you mix up the oxalic acid which is wood bleach you need to have make sure it's for bees you don't want to go down to your home and garden center and get some that's cheaper because the fillers that they put in are the problem you want it to be as pure as it can be you mix it up with sugar water you use it in the pipette, and then you drizzle it across the top of your frames, right? So the bees get into it, and it gets on them, and they kind of groom themselves, and they're also being treated with oxalic acid. And she said, it is an easier, safer delivery system for the oxalic acid, and it's safer for the beekeepers. Because when you use oxalic acid vapor, you have to have an N95 mask, which we probably all now do have because of COVID, but you need to have, you know, chemical gloves on. And she said, and what do we do? Do we put all that stuff on or do we invest in it? Of course not. You know, we think we're going to cut corners and just stick that wand in and run away and let them vaporize the high for a couple minutes. So if you're going to do it, my recommendation is look into doing it with a oxalic dribble. And you can do it a couple of times. It's not limited to once a year. Normally, the oxalic acid, there are people who do the oxalic acid vapor some, some once a month. The problem with the vapor is that it burns the antenna of the bees, you know, their communication. They travel through pheromones. They don't have very good eyes, but they're pheromone-driven. And if you're burning off their antenna, they can't navigate. Oh, that's so interesting. They recommend you do it once a year. And you're doing it, you know, going into winter so that you're knocking the number of row up down. But don't do it every month or so. Remember, it doesn't penetrate the brood. So you're wasting your product and your time. And you're also probably damaging your bees. So that's good for once a year. And then the dribble, you can do a little more frequently. But again, you need to monitor, do it, and then check your varroa levels, whether you redo it or not. And 
if you can do the dribble, formic acid, it's not a, it's not an artificial chemical. It's a natural, you know, product in, in nature. You're helping your bees in managing varroa. And then you, in September, we sometimes have a second flow here in the Midwest when the temperatures start going back down. The flow tends, the plants tend to reproduce when the temperatures are between 74 and 86 degrees. So when you start seeing those fall temperatures move in, sometimes there'll be a second, small second flow. And you're mon- again, you're monitoring the level of varroa in your colonies that sometimes people do a split in, in the spring, or better yet, they'll combine. They'll go into winter with a very strong colony because they don't have varroa or they have low, low levels, and then they'll split them in the springtime, right? They'll go back to splitting them out in the springtime. So you have a lot of options besides going and getting an artificially created chemical. And the things with, for example, HopGuard, I think we're on HopGuard 3 now. Some of these products have been overused and the varroa has developed an immunity, immunity to them. So you don't want to, it's like people overusing antibiotics. You don't want to use them to the point where you can't use them anymore. Yeah, that's a great point. I think I had heard just the other day somebody was making mention that Avivar is, I think, in the process of, of redoing their formula because there's some reports of some uh, resistance to that. I don't know if it's substantiated yes. or not, but yeah. Yes, there is. And, you know, and we don't think about that. We're just a little beekeeper, you know, in the middle of California or in the middle of Michigan, and we don't think what we do is going to make a difference. It will make a difference. Because remember those varroa, you know, even though they don't fly, they do hop. You know, they, they can be on a plant and a bee's flying by and they can hop on a bee. So it, they're out there in nature. And until nature gets a balance, figures out how to control them, because they're an invasive pest, we need to be careful about how we're managing them as well. I'm a big advocate for varroa-sensitive queens. I think there's a lot of research taking place now where people are developing in John Harborough down in Louisiana. We have Corey Stevens here in Missouri. We have Marla Civic in Minnesota, who apparently might have a new breed of queen coming out in 2024 or 2025. She's been working with John Harborough. You know, keep an eye on those developments because that's the bees taking care of. That's where I would like to see. I'd like to see the bees managing for all. We have, do you have small hive beetles at all? We do, yes. <laughs> okay. They're like little black ladybugs for those of you who don't have them. We first noticed them here in Missouri in 2014. They're an invasive pest. Again, this is from sub-Sahara Africa. They fly seven miles. They will travel with a swarm, just like the varroa will travel with a swarm. And when I first saw those, I, I was appalled. My bees were feeding them. The, the, the small high beetles learned to tickle the, the tummy of the nurse bees so the nurse bees would feed them. And I remember thinking, oh, this has got to stop. And so I would just brush them with a feather, you know, to separate them. Of course, it was totally useless. But I started monitoring. I made sure that I never put too much, you know, protein patties people like to put on their hives. Don't put the whole patty on the side. That's a nursery for small hive beetles. If you're going to feed a protein patty, and there are times you want to do that, you only put a, a square, right, a small 
something that the bees could consume in two to three days, and there's no time for the small hive beetle to lay their larva and have a small hive beetle nursery. About five years after I first saw the small hive beetle, one spring I was doing my first inspection, and the last frame, it was in a deep, I used eight frames because they, 10 frames are too heavy for me. I pulled this frame out, and I swear to you, there were bees corralling all the small high beetles in the corner of the frame. I went, yes, girls, that's what you have to do. Of course, I squished every single one of them. Sure. And it didn't mean I didn't have some later, but the bees were learning that they were not good to have in the hive. And so if we can have queens that are producing bees that understand what they have to do for varroa, that will be a step in the right direction. You know, I, I'm a huge fan of the VSH Queens. The, the two issues I have, the number one, as you're probably going to figure out pretty quickly here, is the cost because they are really, really expensive. Yeah. yeah. But the other part that I think of is you're basically, you know, one virgin queen away from losing some of those great genetics. So if, you, if you're right, not, you're right. yeah, right. if you're not mating them with, you know, uh, VSH drones, you know, but to your point, right, if you can get enough of them or get enough of that resistance natively within you know your apiary and, and adjacent apiaries and then within an, an area and a region, then it gets to a point where, you know, we, we found a way to kind of knock it down, hopefully. Well, what I don't want to do, and I, we, this year we started, we would get swarm cells. We would cut swarm cells out from people who had, you know, were not managing their space, put them in an, in an incubator and we would give virgin queens out to our club members because we knew they were coming from a VH queen, number one. But secondly, we wanted them to understand why they had queen cells. And it doesn't, it's not a guarantee, as you said. You lose it right at the F2 level. I mean, as the, you have genetics, right? The second and third, third family, the, the daughter that you might generate from that first queen. But you might also be able to encourage the, the drones to have those genetics because the drones carry 50% of the genetics. Sure. And so we wanted to make sure that our area, we were just trying to flood the area with these bees to try to get some of the genetics out. We tell people don't import bees from Hawaii or California or, you know, Texas and Florida. Try to keep them as local as you can so that you're not asking for trouble. Right. You're trying to keep the the and local bees tend to do better. You know, you if you bring in a bee that's used to going to Disneyland every winter, they're not going to do well right in a Michigan winter. So the more you can keep your bees local and then you can monitor for sure and maybe contribute to the genetics the better off we are, all are going to be. I know there are several consortiums around the country where people are wanting to do breeding to keep them local. And I think that's a really good idea. It's a little harder to do. You know, you need to have some experience and you need to have some equipment and all of that. But we do need to do something different besides applying chemicals. I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, it's funny. As you're talking, I think there's probably at least at this point, maybe 50 or 75 questions that have come up over the course of time that people have asked. And we've had, and we, so it's great to hear your perspective. Cause I know that anybody who listens will say, Oh geez, I didn't think about it that way, you know? And, and there's things I'm picking up on too. So it's, it's definitely great. The next one I have here in, uh, in the list. Well, I, I did a recent, uh, recent episode and I think I'd even mentioned this to you, but I'd be curious to get your thoughts on the most recent episode. I, I 
uh, labeled it you know, to feed or not to feed. That is the question. And yes. <laughs> and what I wanted to kind of throw your way is, you know, the reason that I, you know, I'm a proponent of it for certain things. And like I mentioned, uh, you know, when you're starting a new colony from a package B, right, it's really important to give them something to have in case it rains for a couple of days. And, you know, there's different scenarios that I kind of ran through where I think feeding makes a lot of sense. But my concern is really on the nutritional aspect of it and just constantly feeding them essentially like, you know, giving kids candy all the time. So what would your thoughts be around feeding and some of the nutritional aspects of it or just anything in general? So we need 33 amino acids to be healthy as people. Bees need 11 amino acids for them to be healthy. They don't come from one flower. They have to pick them up from a variety of different flowers. The flowers themselves do not produce the same nectar, the same flavor nectar. You know that by tasting honey. You pull out a frame of honey that's capped and it's ready. It's it's right. It's honey, right? It's dehydrated, eighteen percent. It's ready for winter use. You can take a teaspoon and just sample, and you will have different flavored honey on that one frame because it's coming from different flowers. Unless you've got your hives in a monoculture, right, a clover field or whatever. The reason I say that is. Those bees, one of the benefits of having that access to such a, um, uh, a multicultural source of, of nectar is that the amino acids are in those different nectars. And so the bees know to bring in the nectars to be able to make themselves healthy. Of course, they're making honey for their winter food, right? It's their version of winter, winter canning. So to answer your question about to feed or not to feed, I discourage just plain old sugar water feeding. If I'm going to do that in the springtime, I always add a little bit of Honey Bee Healthy, which has peppermint. It has several herbs, essence of herbs in there, which also try to provide a few of the amino acids that bees need. I don't put that in the fall if I feed in the fall because that can encourage robbing. But I want them to get the most nutrition they can from nature. So I'm madly always planting things so that they have a variety of fruits and vegetables, I mean, a variety of fruit trees and, well, vegetables that they can find nectar from. In general, you need to have at least six blooming plants at the same time through the growing season. And, you know, plants don't bloom, don't bloom throughout a particular growing season. Sometimes they bloom only a few few months. Buckwheat is an excellent uh, plant that people recommend for bees. Well, have you seen p- bees on a buckwheat in the afternoon? Probably not because the plant only produces nectar in the morning. I call it bee coffee. So the <laughs> bees will be out there early in the morning, you know, when you're not, you're still sleeping and you don't get to see the bees collecting the, the nectar. So even the nectar part of collection for bees is a challenge because the the plants do not produce the nectar at the same time, not the same viscosity or thickness. It has different properties depending on what pollinators the plant wants to attract. And the bees juggle all of that, right, when they put the nectar away in their frames for winter. Long way to say I'm an advocate of letting the bees have the honey. Normally around here, when we winter over, we winter over with a deep and a medium, sometimes two medium. I've been known to go into winter with at least two honey supers. If the, if the 
winter is mild, I will go in with three. If the predict forecast is for a mild winter, why? If it's a mild winter, my bees are visiting me in my garage right in <laughs> January because they have nothing to do. If it's if it's a harsher winter, they will stay cluster, right? The optimum cluster temperature is 50 degrees. And so if they stay clustered, they will consume less honey. And so they'll have enough food to go through winter if they only have two. I also add, I have a feeding shim, one and a half ounce feeding shim that I keep on all my hives all year round. Because if there's something I have to put up there, sometimes I've given them banana you know, a, a rotten banana, try just to see what their reaction would be. Primarily because people say, you know, um, the pheromone, the, the, a talk pheromone for bees is that smells of a banana. My bees have enjoyed the banana and, and not attacked me. So, but I, I'll do different things up there. But in the wintertime, I will make sugar cakes, which have sugar, water, be healthy, a little bit of, of vinegar, which tries to simulate honey, and then I will dry them out, and I put them on top of that feeding shim to help with moisture, because we can have very humid days in the wintertime here, and that sugar cake will help keep the hive dry. These don't die from temperatures, right? They die from humidity. They they die from, from being wet, and frankly, that makes me feel better. I don't know how much it does for the bees. <laughs> but that way, if they run out of honey and I'm not paying attention because it's cold here, they at least have a source of food when they hit the top of that colony, right? For winter, bees here move up. We put them, when we get them ready for winter, we have them in the bottom box, usually a deep, or if it's two mediums, right there in the bottom, and then they're going to move up to get their honey. They're going to work their way through the honey. I have been known to move frames if the cluster is not in the way to put honey frames in the center so as they move up. I've also had bees that have gone up the corner. They want a thing to do with the center of the, the hives. They, you know, ate their way through the corner of the hive. So if I'm sucking them midwinter, I will take the lid off cover off and I'll put my hand over that feeding shim and just feel for the heat because the heat you can tell where the cluster is if they're still alive and then I'll make sure that sugar cake is over where that heat is which will help them stay dry and then if they hit that top because they're out of food they have that sugar but I prefer them to eat their honey that's the healthiest that they can eat yeah I always try to make sure Yeah, I always try to make sure that I'm leaving it. You know, a lot of people will take every bit of honey and then feed all the way through late summer and fall. And I just, you know, that's that's just not my my style. I always make sure that, that there's uh, plenty for them before I take any away. I, I had several years where I didn't even extract honey. I was just like, you know, I want I want to get a, a system down that I know. Okay, how much am I seeing in March and April? Because as you've probably seen too, I've had colonies that have been alive in January and February and they die the first or second week of March because they just didn't have enough, you know. So, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm a big proponent of letting them keep as much honey as possible as well. And I, I may well, and have, that's what that, uh-huh. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I may have to send a follow-up email to you on, on that recipe so I can post that in the Discord room for, uh, sure. for, yeah. I'll be glad. And what I'll do in February, if we know it's going to be a wet spring and they can't get pollen, 
I'll use a pollen substitute. I'll add a little bit of that pollen into that sugar so they have a little bit of food. Because you know they're brooding up, right? You know yes. they're, they're wanting to need that food. And we went through one screen where it was just awful. And I mean, the bees were not healthy. And I remember thinking, okay, there is something I can do about that, you know, helping them with, with a little bit of pollen substitute. Dale Hill from Illinois, and who's the other gentleman I spoke with over the years who actually developed protein substitute products said the hardest thing for the beekeeping industry is to find a good food substitute for bees. Nature is still the best source. Even a poor foraging area will have better pollen for bees than a substitute. So, you know, it's just knowing that it can be a tool that you can use at the right time, but it's not a substitute. All right, everybody, as you can tell, Charlotte and I were talking for a very long time today. This is only half of it. We have another hour plus coming up in part two. So I'm going to go ahead and cut this off. We'll get that uploaded here in another week. As always, feel free to reach out, Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. If you like, you can catch us in the Discord room. Just go to beekeepingfornewbies, N-E-W-B-E-E-S.com. About halfway down the page on the left-hand side is a link to the Discord room. Love to see you in there. we got about 125, 130 people. So come on in and say hello. And stay tuned for part two coming up here next week. Thank you, folks, so much. Take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.